something. And he just says the thing to me that all of the good people say in this scenario. And he says, you'll always be my daughter, which, you know, I, it's not true. I'm, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I don't know that either of us really believe that. Hello, you are listening to NPE Stories. This is a podcast where NPEs can share their story. I am your host, Lily, and I found out I was an NPE through an ancestry DNA test that changed my life forever. NPE is a term that stands for not parent expected or non-paternal event. This means that one or more of our parents are not who we believe them to be. NPE Stories is a podcast where NPEs can share their story of what their original family was like, how they found out they were an NPE, and what their journey has been like since the day they found out. Welcome to episode 88. Today I am speaking with Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Lily. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I am reading through your emails, and can we start by talking about the fact that far before you found out you were an NPE, you'd actually done significant work with, what is this, with um, assisted reproductive technologies yes. and kinship? Yes. I'm so curious. Will you explain a little bit of this work to me? Sure. So, um it initially began, I was in anthropology and then I had a professor that was like just very, uh, very helpful toward me and encouraging. And, um, when I went, um, to graduate school into my doctoral program, I sort of synced up with a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, so he was an MD and he was, um, he did research with a medical sociologist and their area of research was, people who had used assisted reproductive technologies and specifically people who had used donor gametes. So a donor egg or a donor sperm to um, create their families. And so they went in all kinds of directions like that. So we actually interviewed people who had, had used, we did hundreds of interviews with families that had used these technologies. And eventually it like morphed into me studying specifically whether or not these people would tell their children or their families about the fact that they were conceived with donor gametes and, you know, how, if they did tell the story, what sort of narrative they used to do that, or if they kept it a secret, how they intended to do that as well, you know, and how they would sort of work around that. Um, and because I w came from the anthropology background, I tied um, like kinship into that, which is like, um, you know, the historical idea of kinship and blood relatedness. So <laughs> I wrote an extensive article on it and that was at least, I'm trying to think, it was like almost 20 years ago, I would say, like 15 or 20 years ago that I wrote that article. Maybe it wasn't quite that long, but it feels like a lifetime. Now, now do you have any current articles out that I could maybe put into the notes? Did you write for Severance Magazine? Was I did, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I could, um I wrote an art, I like sort of reflected, I had been reflecting on this idea that I had this strange um, <laughs> background and then discovered that I was an NPE. So I started thinking about how, what my perspective had been at the time and how my perspective had very significantly changed um, in finding out about being an NPE and just listening to other people's stories. So I wrote about that for Severance Magazine and 
um, BK Jackson was just like super gracious and published it with a lot of enthusiasm, just super encouraging. So yeah, that was very helpful because I was very cathartic because I was in the middle in the kind of the, the deep part of, (laughs) of the discovery. And you're still, I mean, you're still new. I mean, that's all relative term, but when, when did you find out you were an NPE? The exact day that I found out was literally like December 22nd, I believe. I mean, oh that's when it started to come to light, December 22nd, when it was really for sure, for sure, uh, was the tw- December 23rd. This is mm-hmm. like barely six months ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh, Jennifer. This is, you know, I have I have seen your this article, your articles um, going around on Severance Magazine and in the NPE and MPE forums. People have been sharing it. I, I, you know, I didn't realize that was you until I made the connection, but to think you here, you've done all this, you know, years of academic research on, on this, this very topic. And then to find out you are one yourself, I bet you, I bet you have a unique perspective because you're probably so empathetic to, especially now that you've been through it yourself so empathetic to everyone's journey and what they're going through when finding out the secret when it comes to light. Well, I hope I can be. It, <laughs> it's a, such a bizarre turn of events, but yeah. <laughs> what did a lot of the parents back when you would interview parents of, um, I guess, what do you, what do you call them? The donor parents? No, wait, oh, that's yeah. not right. Yeah, the because um, they're no, using the egg or the sperm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. I just referred to them as the parents at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, most of them didn't. Um, most didn't articulate a differentiation between their biological re- relatedness. Like it would come up for them, but only and probably in having to talk to me about. It. I'm sure it came up in more, you know, psychological, like under, you know, emotional ways later, um, but. Well, it went one of two ways. They would either already have a story that they had prepared long before, you know, like when they were pregnant with the baby. It was like their origin story. You, We had this nice person that helped us to make you. You know, we wanted you so badly um, that we did these things to, to create you and to make you ours, you know, mm-hmm. to make you a member of our family. And then the other, the flip side of that was, you know, the child can't know because, you know, they what if they reject me? Mm. Okay. So they were keeping the secret out of fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. And to, mm-hmm. be, to be fair, that was not a, as common. It was much more common for people to want to disclose to their children. It was just sometimes a ma- people, it was sometimes a matter of timing. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes people would get past the point with their children, you know, always intending to disclose, but then they'd, the child would keep getting older and they had already established these relationships and these narratives. And then we're like, how do we, how, how do we break this news basically, which, you know, maybe is somewhat like, I mean, I guess that's an NPE story in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. These secrets coming to light and finally learning yeah. about your true genetic identity. Yeah. Hmm. Hard. <sighs> All right, Miss Jennifer, do you have any, do you have a, a website or anything you want to refer us to before we hear your story today? No, I just like, <laughs> I have no social media or anything. So 
Oh, um, one of those. <laughs> so this is uh, the podcast has been a lifesaver because otherwise I wouldn't, I would think I was totally alone. <laughs> I know I'm not. You are not. You are definitely not. All right. So we are going to hear Jennifer's story today and take us back to the beginning. But I would just really encourage you, since you have worked so hard on and you've worked so much on your academic research, feel free to go beyond just your own personal story. I think a lot of, you know, donor conceived individuals and and myself included are interested in learning more if you want to expand on anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But let's switch over to your individual story and tell me who was in your original family and take it from there. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to start with a little bit like about where I grew up because I think that's somewhat significant to like how my family developed. I was in a, I grew up in this small town in Northwestern Montana and it's actually the confluence of like several little towns in a valley that used to be supported by logging and cattle ranching. And so when I was growing up in the in the 70s and 80s, our town was suffering from this sort of precipitous decline of, of these industries. And so the livelihood of the town was essentially breaking down. So that was true for the families there as well, you know. So it meant there was like a lot of poverty. And then by default, there were these mental health issues and substance use and abuse and suicide. So all these things that go along with this kind of environment. And so I feel like in terms of telling stories and, and like family narratives that happened, there was this sort of intergenerational trauma that was rationalized because of what was happening in the area, because it was so pervasive. And so it sort of became normalized. And I, like I say, I think that had a big effect on families and my own is one of them. So the Valley is like at the northernmost part of the country. And for that reason, it's it's a winter most of the time. So like essentially nine months of the year, it is really cold and dark. There's like um, this sort of reverse airflow problem in which the the cold gets like sucked down into the valley and the mountains create this barrier. So it's like super dark and um, it gives it this really like sort of bleak, desolate feeling. And, and that's comp- compounded by all of the social issues that are happening in the area. And I think that really affects the people as well. So one of the towns in the Valley is a, is a town where the man that I would find out is my biological father was raised. It's just outside of the Valley. It's actually m- much more North toward the Canadian border, like right on the border. Um, he still lives there today, but this town was an EPA Superfund site which is, and it's considered one of the worst man-made environmental disasters in history due to vermiculite mining in the area. Vermiculite is just this naturally occurring substance. I guess it's a mineral, but it has all these commercial uses because it can withstand this very high temperature, um, but it also contains asbestos. So like it was mined very heavily there in the 60s. So by the time I was coming of age, which was like the 80s and 90s, there was something like a third of the town and the town only has like 2,500 people in it had were either sick or had died from asbestos poisoning. This also contributed to, yeah, the trauma for the residents of this area. And then I think it's kind of significant because my biological, who I would find out was my biological father lived there. Anyway, it's also surrounded on all side by Indian reservations. So, you know, 
we um, are the children and grandchildren of settlers, um, particularly in my family, but in the whole area. So we're being raised on this land that doesn't belong to us. I mean, like most of the country, right? Obviously. But here, the tension's very, very palpable. Um, So anyway, that's where I grew up. And I was raised by, from the age of three or so, maybe a little younger than three, actually, um, by my mother and stepfather. Um, They got married when I was like, I don't know, two years old or so. I don't actually even know the exact date. So, and when they married, my stepfather had two children. They're twins, um, a boy and a girl, and they are um, four years older than I am. Um, so they mostly lived with their mother. Um, she lived in the, one of the towns in the valley, um, and they lived with her until they were about eleven years old. But they visited on weekends and and holidays. You know, like at the typical eighties sort of. I don't know, step family kind of situation. It was Mm -hmm. fairly common at the time. So um, my mother and stepfather, they had a daughter later when I was five and the twins were nine years old. And I was very, very close to her growing up. Um, And she actually plays a very, very significant part in my NPE story. My parents, my mom and my stepdad, they were pretty young when they married. They were like 20 and 21 and 26 or 27 respectively. And so they partied a lot. <laughs> um, I, w- I don't know. I read this, I read this article earlier in the year in the New York times. I don't remember. It was about Woody Allen or something like that, but it, it commented on kids of our generation and my generation, um, how they didn't really see much of their parents, but they mostly heard ice cubes clinking and or in glasses or arguments from other rooms. And I think that is like a very good illustration because I think that sums it up pretty well for me. I had a fairly volatile relationship with my mother sort of from the get-go. I would say that I was a good kid. I mean, I don't know. I have kids of my own, so I know that there's not really any such thing as a bad kid, you know? They're just bad circumstances, you know, or like (laughs) not bad parenting, but you know, like problematic or like sort of absent parenting. So I, frankly, I feel like I worked very hard to be good at things to try to make my mom like me. Um, but I didn't, it, it's like, she didn't seem to, and that may be just my perception, but that's what was communicated to me, you know, like no matter how hard I tried. And I think, it's important to mention here that for that reason, I spent a great deal of time with my grandparents, my mother's parents. So I essentially lived with them until my mother and stepfather were married. And then after that, I, I spent all of my free time with them, like evenings and weekends, whenever I could get myself to them, you know, they live near, very nearby. So I could just like ride my bike over there. There was like a, like a, it's like a sort of busy road now, but it was like a country road at the time it was close. So I would just ride my bike over there and sort of like plant myself at their kitchen table and they would just talk with me for hours and they would, you know, my grandfather was a fairly accomplished carpenter. So he would build things with me. Um, my grandmother would play card games. They always wanted to feed me, you know, love me as mm-hmm. grandparents do. <laughs> um, and my mom had two younger brothers, but they were still at home at that time. So one was only 10 years older than I was. And one was 15 years older than I was. I should say am because they're still living. Um, 
but they, you know, they, I was very lucky because they protected me. They looked out for me. They were like, they were much more like siblings than my older stepbrother and sister, just because they were there. This was like a, it's like how an, your extended family becomes like this nuclear unit in a sense, because, you know, it's where you find comfort. And I should say at this point that this happened without any biological relatedness to them. Um, contrary to my ideas about kinship when I was in grad school. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure why I didn't reflect on this, but my mom is adopted and her middle brother is adopted. And that detail is basically the crux of my NPE story, because if that had not been the case, I would, I would not have an NPE story to tell. I don't think, as I was saying, I really struggled with my mom because I was an extremely emotional little kid. And I've heard on your show that many, (laughs) many NPEs are. And, um, Anyway, I thought I thought at the time that I was a very emotional little kid because I was told that over and over again. But you know, as I said, I have kids of my own and they process things in this sort of existential way, so I would say that I was a normal little kid. I was just super discombobulated by my circumstances. You know, I was searching. You know, like any kid, I was just trying to figure out who I was. And um I had that, and maybe I still have like that disquieting feeling of being out of place, you know, like virtually all NPEs say this, but you ha- you don't quite feel like you fit in and you don't really know why. So I kind of presumed it was because I was, I mean, not kind of presumed, I totally presumed it was because I was a stepchild, right? That my stepfather was there and he had these other two children and then he and my mom shared another daughter and that I was just like, an outsider because of that. Not that it was some like larger psychological state that I would struggle with until, you know, today. (laughs) Um, Anyway, my um, biological father or, well, no, the person that I thought to be my biological father. So my birth certificate father, he lived in Ohio and um, Findlay, Ohio is where he lives. And from the Valley where I lived, it's 2000 miles away. So he, for some reason, after he graduated from high school, moved to Montana and he was working there and, you know, Glacier National Park is near there. So a lot, it's like a destination sort of for young people Mm -hmm. um, because you can get jobs and do lots of things in the industry there, outdoors or, you know, tourist industry. So he and my mother got married very, very early uh, in their relationship. Like I can't calculate it and I'm not really, I'm in close contact with my mom right now, but I would say that they had been together for maybe two months when they got married, like two months at the outside. So they got married, they moved to Ohio. I was born. And then by the time I was not even a year old, like 10 months old or something, my mom was back in Montana. They were getting divorced and we were living with her parents. My birth certificate dad, in order to maintain a relationship with me, he um, would make an annual trip to the Valley. He would, I don't know if he rented a van. I believe he rented, they would rent a van, his wife. And he had two daughters at this time and then uh, a stepson. And they would drive from Ohio, the 2000 miles to the Valley. And they would pick me up and we, for a week to 10 days would stay in motels around the Valley. (laughs) Um, And so like, I've described this to many people before, but it was because it was so bizarre, but he, they would, 
I would get this, I would know when they were coming, obviously. And I would have this like intense anxiety and like sinking feeling. I mean, I'd be excited because I have this man that's my father. Like I don't have a father other than this person that's very far away, but he's, they're like distant, distant relatives. Right. And they, so they drive and I would see his van approaching my parents' house or most often I was with my grandparents. And so like they had this long, like dusty road that goes through what used to be like their garden pasture area. And I would see it coming and I would just have this like dread about leaving my, you know, my family who I thought was my family. And then I would go in my hometown and stay in motels around the, around the area and not see my, the rest of my family for like two, <laughs> 10 days or, you know, it was, it's like super surreal. So I don't really, I don't really know what to say about that. It was, you know, it was his, it was the only way that he knew how to maintain a relationship with me. So that's how it worked out. And as I said, like this strained relationship I had with my mom, it was just went on throughout my childhood into my teen years, like it does for most people. But I was, you know, I became very reactive to her and probably super confrontational. I mean, I definitely was until my stepfather became quite ill when I was around 11 years old, he started to have a lot of respiratory problems. Um, and he had to have a tracheotomy and his lung collapsed and he was like in and out of hospitals and they had specialists involved. And at some point he was like airlifted to national Jewish hospital in, in Denver. And eventually they discovered that he had a rare genetic disorder called alpha one antitrypsin deficiency, which is, you know, the simplest way to say it is that you're it's like a liver disease and it can affect either your liver or your lungs. The liver produces an enzyme, a protein that helps to fight um, in, a, in a normal, in a healthy body that helps to fight like, environmental um, irritants and, you know, in pollution and cigarette smoke, all of the allergens, all the things. Um, and if you don't have that, then your lungs just deteriorate. So that's what was happening to him. So he was on a transplant list and when I was 15 years old, he, um, he would carry a pager around. This is how in back in the day before cell phones and everything, he carried a pager. And when the pager went off, he was supposed to call and it was supposed to mean that he, there was a donor available for him. So I went off all the time because people were always dialing wrong numbers. But one night when I was 15, it went and my younger sister was 10 and my older brother was living at the house at that time, you know, but he was 19. So I'm not totally sure what he was doing there, but the pager went off and it was a donor that was available. A young man had had a motorcycle accident, you know, and a severe head injury and, and it was a match for my stepdad. And so my brother and my mom and my stepdad jumped in a car and drove to, to Washington state, Spokane, Washington, which is like four hours away and left me and my younger sister there. My sister was asleep, the 10 years old. And, you know, this is her father and, you know, they didn't wake her up to tell her what was happening. They didn't say, you know, you know, he might die. Like she may not see him again. So anyway, I was tasked with having to tell her this situation. So I called my grandparents and said, you need to come here and be here when this happens. So anyway, long story short, they took her away. She ended up staying with relatives and and friends of the family through that time. But I was a sophomore in high school and I essentially you know, raised myself at that time. I mean, because they were, they had to get an apartment in Washington. He was in and out of the hospital because he got pneumonia at some point, you know, people with, it was uh, his heart and both of his lungs. So it was a very rare procedure at the time. Um, 
he would go into rejection. So they ne- needed to keep returning thoughts, but they needed to be near their specialists. And, you know, he was very ill. Um, so yeah, I was just there raising myself <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> when I'm 15. So that was something else. Oh. Um, uh, so anyway, we, my conflict with my mom kind of dissipated because you know what, you know, there was a lot going on for the family at that time. Right. So anyway, that is sort of what it was when I, well, when my mom was back at home, we still had conflict and at, you know, the Valley I found like very oppressive anyway, I really depended upon my grandparents and you know how teenage girls are very attached to their girlfriends. Like most of my intimacy was from a very small group of friends. Um, and we all wanted to get out of the Flathead Valley. We all had like bigger expectations for ourselves. So, you know, by the time I was 17, anyway, I was, I had moved away and I essentially have not been back, um, for like 30 years. I mean, I have visited obviously, but, um, I, I never have lived there again. I'm just listening to all of this and I can't even believe what you have gone through at such a young age, raising your, you know, basically raising yourself there when your stepdad is ill. And that's um, a lot. I mean, it was a lot for the family. I should give my parents credit. I mean, they were very young and they had a lot to contend with. Right. Um, and it was a different time. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know what you're saying though. I, I too was a child of the eighties. So I know that very kind of hands-off approach to parenting. <laughs> yeah. It, took, it took, definitely influenced how we parent, right? <laughs> right. Oh, we are such different moms. Like oh what God. you and I, what you and I went through to organize this podcast today to get all our kids out. <laughs> of the house. Okay. Let's, let's move on. So okay. how did you find out you were an NPE? Well, um, as I said, you know, I was very close to my mom's parents, her adoptive parents, but you know, they didn't refer to her that way, obviously her parents. And my grandmother kept these super extensive family trees because her parents had been um, settlers at the post office in one of the very small towns there. So they had like tons of records. Um, So I sort of inherited that. And I totally identified with my grandmother's family as if it were my own. You know, I didn't think much about the biological relatedness. I was like, this is my family. So um, because I was the keeper of these family trees, um, my sister bought me a DNA test. My younger sister, the one I was very close to, who is the daughter of my mom and stepdad. Um, And I looked back before speaking with you to see when that was, and that was in 2016. So quite a while ago. And I guess I was somewhat interested in the genetic heredity portion of it, you know, like the ethnicity, whatever, but not really. I I had identified with my grandmother's family as my family. And I liked tying her family trees into the ancestry. So I used the ancestry.com to make the family trees, you know what I mean? Because it's Mm -hmm. very, it's easy to find data there um, unrelated to the DNA portion. So that was like kind of an aside. And for the record, I would never <laughs> of my own volition have bought this test. Like I hear a lot of people say this, but I literally would never have taken a DNA test. Um, my mom and my sister, however, were, they were very interested in seeking out my mom's biological parents. And I should say origins because my mom always told this really weird um, story and I call it the family folklore. And she would always say that, um, her biological father was a Norwegian skier. There's a big um, ski resort 
in the town where we live. And, and so, and there were a lot of people that would come there for training and everything because elevation's high, but she would say that he was a Norwegian skier that came to the United States, um, to do training, why you would come from, you know, Europe. I'm totally not sure, but anyway, that he had come to do, (laughs) to do, to train and that he met her mother and they had this weekend tryst and all this. Anyway, the Norwegian part of it was like the really significant part. She would always tell us that we were Norwegian, right? So that made a lot of sense to me in some ways because I'm very tall and I have an athletic build. I'm like five, nine, five, nine and a half. My mom is like five, two and dark hair. And my birth certificate dad's something like five, six. Uh, I am fair. I have green eyes. My kids are extremely fair. And my eldest son is huge. He's a huge guy. He's like six foot three, like broad, just doesn't make a lot of sense hmm. genetically. <laughs> so anyway, I didn't pay much attention to the genetic part of the DNA results when I got them. And I should have, because it revealed that I was something like 70% Scandinavian, mostly Norwegian. And so I was like, Oh yeah, you know, the new Norwegian skier folklore, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, whatever I kind of blew that off. But I also learned that I'm Danish and then the rest was, a little bit of like Scottish and Irish, but only a very small percentage, which was strange because, and again, I didn't, this did not set off any alarm bells. My biological, my thought to be biological father, the one from Ohio, he's like a hundred percent Scottish, Irish, his parents, you know, are first generation. So, um, but I had no reason to consider that I was like looking for my own father. You know, I thought I was looking for my mother's. So, So anyway, the other thing is that there was this whole slew of people that showed up um, on my profile as being related to me that lived in a neighboring town, right? So one of them emailed me. She was very sweet, but I just presumed that it was my mother's father's side of the family. You know, like I had no reason to think otherwise. We knew who my mother's mother was because we had met her like totally accidentally years earlier. My stepdad ended up working with like a cousin of hers who had a last name that we knew was her mother's last name. It was kind of crazy anyway. And uh, we met her, but my mom didn't maintain really a relationship with her or a daughter that she had. She had one daughter, but I developed a sort of pen pal relationship um, after she died with her brother. He was quite old at the time, like in his nineties. He would send me photos and, you know, I just kind of kept it all for posterity, put it in the, you know, along with other Uh, family tree stuff. So anyway, I knew it wasn't her mother's family. So I just made this logical assumption and attributed these people in the neighboring town to her father. You know, mostly the woman said she had like, you know, 50 cousins or something. So I figured he must have been one of those. So anyway, my father was born and raised in Ohio, you know, and I knew who my father was supposedly. Anyway, so few years go by. Uh, I don't really do much with the, with things I'm doing my kinship research. You know, I'm interviewing other people. I'm not really thinking about my own origins. I have, you know, I have one son to take care of at the time. So, um, anyway, my sister, a few years later buys my mom a test. Um, I don't even know. This must have been like 2018 or 2019. I don't know the exact date, but I looked it over briefly. And again, I used some of the info to try to track down her father, you know, or her father's family. My sister was much more, um, she was much 
much more interested in founding my mom's father. And again, you know, I just didn't notice that my mother and I, I did not compare our backgrounds. I didn't compare our genetic percentages at all. I didn't pay any attention to it really. So past December, the date I told you about the week, sort of the week before Christmas, um, my sister had taken earlier, you know, however long it takes six or eight weeks, she had taken her own test, um, taken her own DNA test and her results came back on, um, you know, a few days before Christmas. And so I began to look really closely at the results because, um, you know, I was curious, we're half sisters. I want, and we don't particularly look very much alike. So I wanted to see how closely we matched up genetically just as like a curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I noticed we weren't closely, <laughs> our ethnicities weren't close at all. So, I mean, beyond not sharing the same father, it totally gave me pause. Um, so mostly the triangulation started to happen. You know, I noticed that neither she nor my mother had much Scandinavian ancestry. So, you know, like zip, there goes the Norwegian skier story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I noticed also through the triangulation that all of these um, relatives that I had in the neighboring town were not on my mother's profile and they were not on my sister's profile. So I said, you know, on the phone, like constantly texting with my sister. I'm like, let's compare, you know, nothing, not a single person. So I called my mom and I, you know, they're very familiar names, you know, like they're fairly common, you know, Norwegian names. So I say to my mom, are any of these names familiar to you? And she says, no, you know, they're not ringing a bell. And I'm like, do you have any idea who these people would be that are listed as my relatives and not yours and not my sister's? And she's like, no, like, you know, genuine confusion. So then I'm like utterly confused because is she feigning confusion? You know, is she lying? Is, has she like blocked something out? I don't know. And I don't really know what to make of it at that point. Like I don't, I don't immediately go to the, Oh, I have a different father. I'm sure. uh, And I notice many of us don't go there right away. So anyway, in the meantime, all this is happening and we locate um, a biological sister of my mom's father. Uh, on my mom, a biological sister of my mom, I should say on my, on her father's side. So we, so we actually identify who her father is. And in the middle of all this, I'm tasked with contacting this person. So, you know, I try calling her and texting her, you know, she sees this strange number coming up on her phone. I'm pretty sure she probably thinks like I'm a telemarketer or something. So I sent sort of like a vague text message to her, you know, telling her to call me back. And I didn't hear from her for a while. But I'm at work, um, and for by a while, I mean, this is like all protracted because it's just a few days, right, where all this is happening. Um, so I'm at work, and I, I, I work the PM shift, like the swing shift at a hospital because I am now a nurse. Yes, I used to be <laughs> a sociologist, but now I'm a nurse. And I get a text from her, and she's dealing with this shock, you know, like, why am I calling? What can this be about? You know, what is this about her father? I get someone to cover my patients. And at this point we're in the like smack in the middle of the COVID crisis at work. So things are really rough at the hospital and we're under this extreme amount of stress. So there's this couple with the fact that I'm grappling with the fact, you know, that my father is probably not who I think he is. 
So I call her because I know, you know, how shocking, right? There's some stranger that texts you and says, you know, I have this news about your father and I'd like to discuss it with you. Um, And then that you have a sister and that your father had a child before you and your brothers. Like, obviously I didn't say this in the text message, but you know, I felt like I needed to articulate it to her. So, you know, it was just another family secret and now our families are coming together. So that's really hard. So this poor woman is, is so great. She is a very nice person. She's so shocked, but she's like understanding and open, you know, she's like, Oh my gosh. So we share back and forth photographs of the two families, you know, and the likenesses are just like totally stunning. So, you know, it's exciting at the same time. And it, and as it's like totally excruciating because the whole time, all I can think about is my own father. So we're kind of in the same boat, I guess, you know, but I feel like I'm gaining someone and talking to her because she's like such a genuine and sweet woman and like gaining this whole new family. But, you know, in reality, it's my mom who's gaining this whole new family. And at the same time, I'm losing mine. You know, I have my father, I have sisters and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, you know, So this is where I start to become like extremely emotional. So, um, you know, and that, as we all know, lasts for a really long time. So I get off the phone and I have this kind of intense emotional breakdown, but you know, it's the middle of the COVID pandemic and it's not really very rare for healthcare providers to have this happen. So I can kind of excuse it away, but you know, this torrent of emotion, it comes on and essentially doesn't stop for like, I don't know, three months. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about you, but even now, like I shed some tears every day. Mm. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how long that lasts. (laughs) Yes. Could someone please tell us how long that lasts? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, also, you know, and you'll probably identify with this. I mean, I think we all just are in, have so many of the same feelings, but this is where I start to, the anger starts to really creep in too, you know? So anyway, back in Montana, my sister makes this family tree and it's, um, the family trees related to all the people in the neighboring town who are appearing in my, my profile. She like super sleuths it out. And, um, she recognizes the family name of a close friend of my father. I mean, my stepfather, her dad, um, And she telephones my mother, which continues to be a point of contention between us because, you know, we've always been really, really close. And not only when she called me, was she reluctant to give me the name of the person, my father, mind you, but she called our mother first, which I think speaks directly to, you know, the relationship between the two of them and somehow how that not only supersedes the relationship between the two of us, like my sister and myself or my mom and myself, but the three of us, you know, Mm -hmm. because as far as I'm concerned, that nullifies my value in the family and my right to know about my origins. You know, it's like these old patterns just play out again and again. Right. So anyway, she calls our mother after she figures out who my father is and she gives her the name of my father. And apparently there's this like, super long pause. And my mom says, well, that complicates things. And then then this is the point where my sister phones me. It's like, 
the triangulation has now been like cemented forever in our family dynamic. So like I said previously, you know, don't get me wrong. It always existed, but she phones me, which is also weird because now that I'm talking to you, because after she talks to my mind, my, my mom, you know, in my mind, I'm like, why does my mother not choose to phone me herself and break the news to me? You know, yeah, it's her story. So anyway, no, my sister phones me and tells me so-and-so is probably your biological dad. And I just like totally freeze. It's like time stands still. I enter this space of complete and utter lack of self self-recognition. It was like I went into a fugue state. I don't know what was happening, but I've talked to a lot of people about this and I've written about it some, but I enter this space, this liminal space that in kinship we talk about, which is this threshold where you're going like it's a, you're waiting to pass through to something else. But typically that experience is very transient. You know, it just is brief experience, but for MPEs, for people with misattributed parents, like, you know, for like you and me, it's like totally protracted because you totally lose yourself and there's nothing that you're like passing into. You're just like, the, the old you is just sort of gone, you know? So I remember sitting on my bed with my family around me and it's like early in the morning, it's the eve of Christmas Eve. And I'm just being like, who am I? And then I remember walking into the bathroom to wash my face because I had been crying and crying and crying. And, you know, I'm trying to calm myself down, like to wash all this away and to just, and then I, you know, the mirror above the sink, I just like see myself for the first time after this revelation. And I'm like, who is this? It is so strange. And initially it was like a totally awful experience because it's, it's like genuine loss. You know, obviously that evolves as we transform and we like make sense of it and all of the mom- all of the feelings that you have in that first moment but i mean the feelings dissipate but at at that moment all of those feelings that you had of being a misfit growing up or like that puzzle piece that just didn't fit in your family you know that initial feelings starts to starts to make sense of all of those feelings that you'd had your whole life like it all it coalesces, but that initial feeling definitely lasts for months. You know, it totally knocks you off your feet. So, and you know, we all have lives and responsibilities. Like I, for example, I'm a nurse and, and a mother. And so I just like, how in the world can we possibly take care of other people in any genuine and nurturing way when we're in this like deep, deep state of mourning coupled with having, you know, no idea who we are. It's so hard. I mean, I just want anybody listening to know, like, you are not alone. It is hard. Anyway, back to my mom. She starts calling me, and I'm, like, way too bereft to answer the phone. So it's like I can't think. I can't pick up the receiver. I can't speak. I can't breathe. So I try to calm down, and I text her. I'm like, I'll call you in five minutes. Um, So I kind of get myself together, and... I call and there's no, no answer. And, you know, 
that's bizarre because I said I'd call you in five minutes. But anyway, so she answers. I kind of chip her like, you know, oh, sorry, I was doing the dishes. I didn't hear the phone ring. <laughs> <laughs> so then she tells me the story. She's like breaks into the story and tells it to me from start to finish. Um, and the story is something like it to in brief. It's like she is, yeah, you know, she's like 18 years old at this time. Right. So she's graduated from high school. She has this job as a journalist at the local newspaper that she really loves, but then she starts partying and she moves in with a group of girls downtown. You know, it's a town. It's like a really small town. Um, and she loses her job as a journalist and, um, I don't know, like that night or something that she was her job. She's, I don't know if like, I don't know exactly how it went, but, um, the guy that, ends up that's my biological father um he shows up at this party and uh she's known him her whole life he's a bit older than she is and he's like in a sports car and you know she jumps in a sports car and they drive to the neighboring town you know the one um, i discussed in the beginning um the mining town and they stay at his sister's house and you know so she tells me this like in excruciating detail, like there are so many <laughs> details I didn't need. Anyway, the rest is history as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, I don't know if they were a couple. It's just like, it's so not clear to me because I haven't been able to like bring myself to ask a lot of questions about it, but they don't stay together in any, in any event. But she, after losing her job, she meets my nice guy dad who ends up my birth certificate dad, who I think is my bio dad. And she, he's a manager at the place where she begins to work and she really likes him. And they start spending a lot of time together, you know, like floating the river and going to the glacier park and hiking and doing all these things. And they really like each other. And uh, so they get married like a month after they know each other from my calculation, like Mm. or two. And she apparently has no idea that she's pregnant or this is the story. They get married. She moves to Ohio. Being in Ohio, she discovers she's pregnant. I don't know, like, did she not do the math? I'm not totally sure. Has a baby. That's me. Moves back to Montana. And by the time I'm like 10 months old, she and my birth certificate dad are getting divorced and and we're living with her parents. So that was like a whirlwind situation. Like I said, she's 18 years old, right? Yeah. So she's telling me this. I remain calm, understanding, you know, revert to my usual pattern with her of just like reassuring her that everything is fine. I'm not angry. You know, that's really hard to hear that this happened to you. You know, I do say to her at this time, like we need to tell, you need to tell my biological father because I don't know him, you know, and, um, and we need to tell my father, my who I think is my father, my birth certificate father. Um, so it's important here, mind you, that she has remained friends with my biological father and his wife. He was very close friends with my stepfather when I was growing up, and apparently he was around. I have no recollection of this man, but she has these grainy photographs <laughs> that when I when she was telling me about him, she like dug them out and she took a photos with her phone and sends me these like little Polaroids or whatever they are, you know, of him. They're like at the lake party. He's in like cutoff shorts. You know, they're like playing horseshoes and smoking cigarettes and drinking beer. You know, (laughs) she's like, you know, here's your dad. This is your father. Do you remember him? And I'm like, I have no recollection. So anyway, 
I said, you need to call and tell him. And she was like, oh no, you know, we have to wait until after the new year because I don't want to ruin his holiday. And, and as for my birth certificate dad, she's like, he just can't know. He's a very sensitive person. You know, he's very kind. He's had a hard time lately. He can't know. So like, I don't agree with any of this. So I call my half sister in North Carolina um, which is where she lives. She moved from Ohio. And recently my dad's sister has died and he was very, very close to her. And my other younger sister lives with my dad and the two of them have just moved to North Carolina. Um, and so they're all living together in the same house with my sister and her husband and their two kids. So I discussed with her if she would please take a DNA test with Ancestry and I send it to her so that I can have like some, you know, concrete, understanding of what's going on. And then I ask if we should, if she, you know, she's very close to him. And I ask if she and my other sister can discuss it with between the two of them and tell me whether or not they think that he should know. And at that time we decided he probably shouldn't know, but I was in the space. The more I thought about it of well, this is a lie that has been going on for all this time. And we, you know, we're carrying, we've been carrying this lie, like in our bodies, like in our psyche and what all this time, I can't let him, he's old, you know, like what if he dies? Like I can't have that lie like in the universe. So anyway, I, I decide to send a letter to my biological dad explaining the situation to him. And I decide to call my birth certificate dad. Um, the day after Christmas, I did let the holiday pass, you know, not, not all the way through the new year though. <laughs> so I send the letter and then before work, I call my, my birth certificate dad. Um, he doesn't answer the phone. And so I'm in my car driving to work. Cause I work in, um, and I work in Berkeley, but I don't live there. And so I'm driving and my phone rings and it's him. So I pull over and I explain the situation to him and I am inconsolable and I cannot stop crying. And he's totally silent because he's a very, very quiet person. And he just says the thing to me that all of the good people say in this scenario. And he says, you'll always be my daughter, which, you know, is not true. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't know that either of us really believe that, you know? So anyway, my mom calls my bio dad and he reveals to her that he's received my letter. Mind you, I had to like really encourage her to call him. So that kind of takes the pressure off of her for a full disclosure, you know, as it were, because he already knows why she's calling. And, you know, he's apparently, she tells me that he's like laughs nervously, you know, because they're, they've been friends a long time. So she tells me about the conversation and what she chooses to tell me about the conversation. And like, maybe this is indicative of what our relationship is like. And I, because I was like, so, you know, what was his response when you told him that he has a daughter? And, um, you know, that he spent time around when I was a child. I mean, you can't look at me and realize and, and not look not realize that I'm a member of his family. We have remarkably similar features. My boys, especially my older son looks just like my bio dad's father. So anyway, my mother says that his response is, well, shit happens. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, he, I have come to learn is an extraordinarily nice person. And I learned that after the fact, um, 
And I realized that he probably said that in a sort of like off the cuff way, probably to make her feel better. You know, mm-hmm. he was yeah, nervous, yeah. like as people, and you know how there are certain people. So like, people are want to do that with her, like to make her feel better. Ah, okay. So, you know, um, but that's what she chose to tell me about the exchange. And that was very upsetting to me because, you know, as if shit happens, like, what does that make me? You know what I mean? So anyway, this is the place where we're at now is like, um, I'm not really, um, in contact with my mom and my sister. I decided that like, I needed some space from them to do this, but, um, my biological dad and I have, were like exchanging letters back and forth. He's very open. He's a very sweet guy. He didn't seem terribly surprised by the situation. Um, we're very similar people. Um, he has two sons, uh, and his wife, you know, she, (laughs) not only is she friends with my mom, but she, at the time that my mom and my bio dad conceived me, one of the roommates in that house of girls that she was living with was his current wife, which is bizarre. Mm -hmm. Um, she didn't take it very well. And so there were a couple of months period where he and I didn't talk at all. I would be like, or I, we haven't talked yet, but he would not he couldn't write me any more letters and he sort of explained it to me. And I would like, you know, I was like checking the mailbox obsessively. And that was very hard for me, but I was walking out of, um, work one night and, you know, I said, I worked the swing shift. So it was like midnight and I received a, an email from her and she was like, she wanted to explain to me their whole circumstance and, you know, that they were having, you know, that they just needed to work through it themselves. You know, they had a, their relationship was in a certain place anyway. And me coming into the picture, um, you know, him having a relationship with somebody else was like disruptive to that. And so she has been extremely open to me in the, I would say in the last week, like right before all this happened. So that is great. And, you know, I asked, um, I asked my bio, uh, my, I'm sorry. My birth certificate is to have my sister's in North Carolina to take the DNA test and that. And she was like, yeah, no problem. Um, because I still sort of want that concrete understanding, but she's twice taken it and it has been like inconclusive or something. And I don't know if it's like, that she's not actually doing it. She's not doing it correctly. Like the universe doesn't want that to happen. I don't know. But anyway, I offered for my biological dad to take a paternity test. Um, just because, as I said, you want this sort of exact reassurance, you know, you want some kind of scientific proof. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the proof that one father is not my father, and I'm related to all of these relatives um, of that biological father, but nothing, you know, I don't have like a paternity test, for example, not something yeah. that seems concrete. So in asking him this, he wrote me maybe the kindest thing that anyone said to me in the midst of all this, which is, I don't need a paternity test. Um because I I can tell by your eyes that you're my daughter. So, you know, that was really moving to me. Um, so our plan is to maybe meet sometime later in the year. I, I don't go to Montana very often, so hopefully I'll get to meet the family. But I think that the bigger picture of this, like in terms of what you're talking about with kinship and my history and all this, is that I realized through this experience that having a misattributed parent is – largely not going to be misunderstood is largely not going to be understood by others. 
And I say that as a reflection of myself, having done the kinship studies before, you know, you look at other people to kind of reflect what's happening to you when you're an NPE, when you have this misattributed parent and you'd find first find out about it, or you kind of want to talk about it. You know, I think I contacted you like five minutes after I found out mm-hmm. it was actually very soon after hearing other stories because, you know, you want to talk it over Be, and because other people around you who it's foreign to, they don't understand. I was sort of mulling this over with my husband before talking to you yesterday. And I, (laughs) I found that people have three responses. No, they have five responses and there's something like the, so what response, which is like, it was probably the most baffling response because, and my husband called it laughable because it's like, people go, Oh yeah. Okay. Big deal. And then there's the response where people are like, your father will always be your father no matter what Mm -hmm. response, which I, in my experience, and when I think about this, like simply not true, you know, because, and then there's the response that like, and this is a very common response to me that this could never happen to me, you know, Uh, there's like, I call it the social stratification response, basically that if your family had any like class, this wouldn't happen. Or the other way it can go is like, my parent would never philander or use reproductive technologies or lie. It's like, it's a problem of the little people, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like I said, that's like a common one to me, but it's like communicated, not always in overt ways, sometimes like really passively, but it's super common. Um, the other one that I hear a lot is like, yeah, I, I, I often wonder if I have siblings somewhere that my father, you know, doesn't know about or never told me about response, which is <laughs> totally different. <laughs> um, but maybe only NPs can explain why that's different. You know, like gaining family is different than losing family. Like finding out about a like fantastical lost sibling or a cheating parent is totally different than like totally losing yourself. And I would say that the last response um, and the rarest is um, when you discuss it with people who who have no relationship to it is that it's genuine compassion, you know. Um, I personally only had a handful of people who also aren't NPEs or adoptees or, you know, in that realm who have who have who have reacted in that way. Like my husband is one of them. Um you know, he's been super understanding and reflective from the very moment that this started to come to light because, you know, he's that person who can say, yeah, obviously this is who you really are. Um, this is who I know you to be, who I've always known you to be. And now you can see who you really are as well. So, you know, that person doesn't negate the feelings that you've always had as an outsider. You know, they are like, yeah, I see that. And then, you know, I was also lucky enough to have close friends who were in this category and that's essentially it. You know, I didn't have access to social media. So I depended upon people around me to, and it took me months to find other MPEs. Yeah. I mean, I thank God for your podcast and, you know, Eve Sturgis and Danny Shapiro, because I voraciously read and listened to you all and all of these various media forms for like in a week. <laughs> and it was just like super helpful to me, even though, you know, I would cry every time I identified with something. When people are going through the same thing you are and they get it, I mean, it just means the world. And you were saying the, the fifth response, the best response, the compassionate response, mm-hmm. 
when you do receive that, when you do get an empathetic understanding, like a compassionate response to sharing what you've just found out, yeah, um, you, I'm assuming you forever love those people. You're just like, oh, thank you. I'm- well, I think about that. Yeah, I was thinking about the people that responded that way were close friends before, but you know, they're closer friends now, right? Yes, because completely. It's, it's like different. I have this friend, Corey, and he's like, he's really funny because- I sent him the photo of my biological dad, the one from the seventies that my mom had like taken the picture of and sent to me that I mentioned earlier. He's in like cutoff shorts and no shirt and playing horseshoes. Like I said, he's like long and lean and muscular. He's got these like super long athletic legs and you know, he's real tan. And uh, Corey just like sends me a text message that says like, I don't know who Mr. Legs is, but I sure am grateful because he made a really awesome person, you know? And I was like, it was so hilarious thing to say, but at the same time I was like, you know, it brought me to tears and I will always remember that, you know? Yes. Yes. I always compare it to, you know, like when someone dies, I have, I have this like prolific, I don't think that's the word to use, but amount of death in my life. So I'm not speaking of this figuratively at all, but you know, like when someone dies and there are just so few people who ever say anything that's really empathetic or meaningful, you know, in those sentiments, you just hold on to them and remember them forever. And you remember the moments, you know, like you remember the hikes your friends took with you afterwards where they just like, let you, you know, just let you be, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I characterize it as mourning and I don't know, because you know, what, what else is it? It's, it's like, I mean, I don't think that's an exaggeration. You know, when you talk to people, you talk to so many people in the NPE world and you imagine yourself like as you were like 30, 40, 50 years. And then you erase that. I mean, you erase an entire arm of your family. And then you also try to reimagine your life through the lens of a lie. Or like, maybe it's not a lie, you know, like my mom would never say it's a lie. So a non-disclosure or an omission or however you want to characterize it, right? That's mourning. And we're all going through that. So, you know, for, for people that listen to this podcast, I hope that they know that like with mourning, any kind of loss, you know, it passes. But it's also important to recognize that it never goes away, you know? And I hope that like, it opens a space like it has for me. Like, even though I probably talk about it ad nauseum to (laughs) to everyone around me, you know, it's for a lot of people. It it opens a space for you to recognize all these weird patterns that you had when you were growing up, you know, of not understanding where you fit in, of being an outsider, of feeling like you didn't know yourself. Like of like that experience I had, I looked like, who is this person? You know? So, but even though you're mourning all of this loss, you have this aha moment. So, you know, I hope that people take it as a kind of breakage, you know, in midlife, like I'm 47 years old, but it creates this place for me to become like a better parent, you know, a better caregiver. And in my role as a healthcare person, like a breakage for me to become like, you know, a better human in the world, because you know who you are. And you also learn how lying and how these kinds of situations really impact other people, you know, so you can just have a lot more, I don't know, sympathy for all of the injustices out there, you know, so 
I mean, basically, I'm just really thankful for you for creating this podcast because I think that's what it does. You know, it creates a place for truth. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Jennifer, if people want to get in touch with you, could they do that? Oh, yeah, that absolutely. All right. And I will put this in the notes. But what is your contact details? Um, it's pretty easy. It's my name. It's um, Carraher, which is spelled C-A-R-R-A-H-E-R, Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, at gmail.com. All right. Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me today. Oh, thank you for being here for all of us. I mean, we all, (laughs) my family included, we all appreciate you so much. These stories are here for us to identify with. If you are an NPE, would like to share your story, email npestories at gmail.com. You do not have to give any identifying information. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, I'd like to hear from you. Subscribe to this podcast to hear more. Come heal with us. Thank you.